Hi, my name is Lawrence Marshbaum, and this is Uncommon. Uncommon is a production focused on the why of business, media, and marketing. It's made by my team at Neural, a digital agency for challenger brands and talent. To learn more, just visit neural.com. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com. My guest this week, Lawrence Marshbaum, founder and chairman of 10 by 10 Philanthropy. Rather, I had a good chat with Dan last night, 8pm. He was doing the dishes, which is always nice to hear the, uh, the clattering in the background. What's the story around this nickname, Hools? <laughs> well, I mean, I was born and raised in London, England. Well, originally that's where I'm from. And uh, I took a I love football. And I like was convinced at an early age that I was meant to be was born to be on the terraces of like some football stadium. And so when the early age of the internet came about and we all had to adopt, you know, our online names, our online Moses, I took the name Hools, short for Hooligan. And so that was the genesis of the name Hools, which I've uh, I'd like to think I've now sort of graduated beyond, but maybe uh, <laughs> old childhood friends bring you back to these things. Yeah. So the, the story goes or what Dan tells me is you you both were on this sort of uh, tour of Israel as most in the Jewish community do at sort of, you know, 17 to 21 type thing. You basically get or go over there for, for a period of time. And he said that you were adamant that this was your nickname, but he's like almost certain that none of your childhood friends called you this supposed name, which I thought was... <laughs> Just class, like a classic Dan stitch up. I thought it was very funny. Well, he's probably, he's got a point. I mean, he said, like, I think we've all got these childhood friends, right? Where you're pretty sure that if you ran for some sort of office or high level position in the world, they would like ultimately bring you down. Yeah. Um, and I think like he's one of those guys for me. So I think you got to take like a little bit of what he says with a pinch of salt, but maybe there's an element of truth to it too. Yeah. Did you out of interest, just, you know, going back to your hooligan past, did you ever watch or like Green Street? The movie? I think I watched it when I was young, but it was interesting, wasn't it? Like there wasn't that many movies about that whole like side of like the UK in the 80s, which was like this whole like football hooliganism. And it's, it's quite ironic now, like because obviously like with the work I'm doing, it's like very far from like the far right movement that probably underpinned a lot of like football hooliganism in, in the UK in the 80s. But um, yeah, no, I, I think I did watch it many years ago. It was a very interesting film. Um, it was sort of what kicked off, uh, I can't remember, what's his name? Charlie Hunnam. That was like one of the movies that, that kicked him off at least. I remember watching it and thinking like, oh yeah, these are, these are my people, so to speak, um, after being like a Man United fan. Out of interest, who do you support in the EPL? I'd always say to my friends, born in North London, live in North London, die in North London, mate. I'm a massive Tottenham Hotspur fan. Okay. I flew to Madrid to watch them in the Champions League final in 2019. Um, we lost, but, you know, had to be there. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm a big Spurs fan. Spurs are playing Man United this weekend, actually. So they are. Man, United, afterwards. Man United is pretty shit. I, I, I mean, they did they did well with um, Ronaldo's, Ronaldo's return game, but um, I don't know. It's one of those things, like, I get a lot of shit for being a Man United fan. And it was the only reason I go for them is because when I, like, ditched AFL and started playing soccer as a kid, Man United and David Beckham were it in the 90s. And so I support, that's the only reason I support them. But I'm copying all this shit about how bad they are. And I'm just like, man, I'm not that invested. Like, yeah. re- relax a bit. <laughs> Mainly from um, fan, like Liverpool fans. My uncle is a Liverpool, mad Liverpool fan. Early 
childhood, you grew up in the UK, it sounds like. What sort of like your earliest inception memory as a kid? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it was one I was just sort of reflecting on. And I think like I was in, I was, I, mean, I was only in London until I was like five or six. And then we moved to Australia, ended up going back to London in my adult life for many years. But um, I think I've got this old memory of my old childhood home and like opening the door and there being like free, frozen milk in like a milk bottle on the steps. You know, like that was, it's a really old school thing. I mean, in the UK, you have milkmen, they drop off the milk, the milk's fresh on the steps. So I just remember like a cold, brisk morning opening the door and like my, there's this milk sort of frozen on the steps in, in my in my family home. Okay. Do you do you drink like do you have a glass of milk still to this day? Is that like a <laughs> Mate, I'm lactose intolerant. No. <laughs> Same. When did you find out you were lactose intolerant? Probably like four or five years ago. Like when I was sort of I, you know, I believe in this whole gut body mind stuff and um it's just sort of trying to solve for a whole bunch of like gut related problems I had and I sort of went off dairy and I just felt much better. So Yeah right. Yeah, um it's ironic, isn't it? It's very ironic. But there's no, I'll forever remember this. This is, I guess, one of the things that Dan and I get along about is like, I grew up in a community, fairly like woggy community. So, Greek background. Um, the Greek Jewish community were like right next to each other in the Ormond area. I've got this old school mate, like, since we were like 15, 16, we'd still, I don't know why, just like a glass of milk. But I don't know. There's something sort of refreshing about it. And I always remember we ran out one night on New Year's and he started off the night at a bar, like a real fancy bar, and he just asked them for a glass of milk. He's like, can I just have a glass of cold, refreshing milk? And he's got this whole theory of like it lining his stomach and getting the night kicked off. And by then, I was lactose intolerant, but I don't know. <laughs> that just, that's the first thing that comes back into my head every time I think of a glass of milk. So your parents are both English? Um, my mom's Australian and my dad's English. Okay, so she convinced your dad to move back here, it sounds like. That's right. That's right. That tends to be the winning trade, doesn't it? You tend to go to where yeah. the woman's family is. So that was, that was so we ended up back here, yeah. Growing up and, and seeing the two different lives because you both had childhood and a part of your adult life, is there anything that stands out to you that is better or worse in either country? Well, I think, you know, I mean, I, I, this is something I reflect on a lot. I mean, I, I lived in London five years in my adult life. And, and I think, um, and I've also had the, the benefit of living in like New York as well. But in terms of London versus Sydney, I think obviously very different cities here. Like great, obviously in Sydney, fantastic lifestyle. Um, one of the, I think one of the things I've certainly learned through COVID is like before COVID, I used to like be on the road a lot, always traveling. And obviously I've, I've been forced to sit still here in, in Sydney and like sitting in like whatever is coming up for me. Um, but I also feel like Sydney is just like an incredibly beautiful place and that I love being outdoors and I love like the whole outdoor lifestyle and begin to exercise and, and health and well-being. So for that, like Sydney's unparalleled. And, in, and London's fantastic for like, you know, uh, for culture, for um, being access to Europe, to travel, to I think being in an environment where like that's a collection of like masters of their crafts because I think like cities like New York and London, like you get the best of people at what they do, you know, gathering in one place. And I think that's certainly an inspiring environment to be in. Mm. Um, so I, I find like, you know, I find London, I still love going to London. I love the, you know, the energy of the city. I love going to the football. I love the, you, you, uh, I love all the aspects that make London a truly wonderful city. So um, my brother still lives there too. So I'm fortunate to, to sort of go when, you know, go quite regularly still. What did your parents do when you like growing up? Well, my my father was um, my father was a 
was a was a banker. He he was worked for NatWest Bank and he got moved out here to help set them up uh, in Australia and and then took the opportunity with 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 that and then he sort of moved on into like, in, being more of an investor later in his life. And my mother was a social worker. Right. Wow. Yeah. That's an interesting pairing. Yeah. How did they meet? Um, I think they met at a party in London that was set up at a friend's house at a party in London. And um, my mother's four years older than my father. So I'm, you know, I'm not sure back then it was this, yeah. So it was a bit, it was maybe a little bit um, different back then. And then, you know, I met a couple of years, a couple of years after they met, here I was. I'm the yeah, first of two and I've got a younger brother. He's two and a half years younger than me. Um, yeah, right. So that, yeah, that, that, that's the story. Are they both Jewish? Yes. Okay. Yes. That's one thing I always pick up on is like in the Jewish community, you get often because the community is pushed so hard together through various groups, you often get people with different mixes of careers, so to speak, which I always find interesting because, you know, for a lot of us who, who are not involved in strong community groups, oftentimes you just associate with people in similar fields. You know what I mean? And you end up just dating someone that is in a similar industry to you. I always yeah. find that very interesting. Okay, so your dad's a banker. This may explain or somewhat explain, you know, you went to Macquarie, Bachelor of Media and Laws, which I found quite interesting. But then your career, it seems like, uh, you know, straight away manager portfolio analyst. At least since 2004, you've been on the buy side of the investment space. So manager, portfolio analyst, another portfolio analyst role, then manager, then portfolio manager, then investment manager. And now as I hear you're, um, you're managing uh, B Super at Sun Super. <laughs> and Dan wanted me to ask you what's, who's managing the Super right now if you're doing this interview. But <laughs> classic fucking Dan. Why get into that space? What was the draw for you? Like, what about your personality? Did you, did you realize it was aligned with that? Yeah, look, I just, I, I was funny. I, I was at my, how I fell into finance was that I was at a, um, really fell into it. I mean, I actually went to law school. So I went to law school, yeah. never practiced, never was interested in practicing it, but I was always involved in, you know, community. And I'm sure we're going to get into my community-based work. And, and my father was very involved in community and he, he was very involved in our community synagogue, and we had this rededication ceremony where they would, where where they'd rebuild the synagogue, and they asked a young member of the community to come and speak about what the, that building meant to the community and meant to them. So they chose me, um, and I got up and I gave this talk. I was like, I don't know, nineteen, twenty at the time. I was still in law school. I gave this speech, and um, after the speech, they had like a like a little bit of a party, drinks, food, and whatever. And this guy came up to me, and he was a religious looking Jewish guy. So, you know, the whole beard and you would have seen the guys, you know, Melbourne beard and Kippur on and you know, it really looked like, you know, a very devout religious guy. And he said, good speech. I said, thank you. And he said, what do you do? I was like, oh, you know, I've got this web design company, which was like a business that I started with some friends. Huh. Um, and he's like, I want to offer you a job. And I was like, I'm cool, man. Like, uh, thanks. I'm good. And, um, but thank you. And I went over to my dad and I was like, dad, there's like some guy over there, like wants me to run like kosher butchery or something. Like, I don't know, like what this guy wants from me. And my dad's like, he's not a kosher butcher, Laurie. He like actually runs around in the most successful property finance firms in the country. I suggest you go and talk to him. So I humbly went back over and I said, oh, hey, look, like maybe I'm interested. He said, all right, come to my office on Monday. 
I was like two years into my law degree. I came in and he sat down. It was like this, I don't know, like boiler room style moment where this, he said to me, look, what are you doing? I told him my story. He said, look, there's this guy down the hall. He's about five years older than you. Um, he's doing, he came to work for me four or five years ago. This is how much money he's making. And I was like, sounds great. So I went back home. I said to my dad, dad, I'm quitting law school. I'm going to go work for this guy. I'm going to make a fortune. And he was like, no, son, you're finishing law school. Um, and you can think about it at that point. So it was, I think, good advice. I finished law school. And in the end, I actually ended up going to work for them, Ash Morgan. Um, and that was my first ever job working in finance. So I just sort of fell into finance. And then I sort of realized like maybe, you know, we were, we, we, this was sort of pre-financial crisis. So the, the market was like very sort of buoyant. Um, and I realized that if I wanted to be like, you know, really good at what I did, I needed to leave Sydney and like try and go somewhere else. So I went to London um, and all the smart guys like were going to work in hedge funds and I thought like I was smart and I thought I could get a job easily and like I found out that I wasn't that smart and it wasn't that easy to get a job. Um, <laughs> and so I ended up like working for a fund in, in, your, in, in London and that started my career really in investing in portfolio management. But to answer your question, I think I'm like, I've just got an inquisitive mind and I'm always just sort of interested in how things work and, and, I, and I'm not scared to ask questions and I think... Um, a lot of what you do, like particularly in, in type of investing I do, it's building information. And so particularly in assets that are unlisted. And so therefore asking really good questions, I think is a skill and an art to build information around like making informed decisions about yeah. investments. So I'm really interested in questions and I'm really interested in decision making. Yeah, because I remember when we met at Dan's, uh, you know, when you flew down from Sydney that time and um, we were talking, we, our first discussion around investment was like TikTok and all that which I found quite interesting. So clearly, yeah, you, you have to have an inquisitive personality and inquisitive mind to be looking at something like alternatives or alternate opportunities that exist outside of your typical listed stocks and real estate and all that sort of stuff. Let's talk about giving. The MS Readathon seems to be the thing that kicked it off. I know at a very early age, you probably realize um, strategically it was per donation, not the amount you could get as a donation that was the most important thing and necessarily that people had deep pockets. It didn't equate to deep donations, so to speak. I, I guess I'm curious with you getting into this space of philanthropy, you know, there's, I have a mate who runs an organization that focuses on Malawi and, and places in Africa that's specific around education and infrastructure. So he, his organizations really, I, I, from memory, it came about because he decided to go on this trip and it really changed him as an individual. And he got a lot of, I guess, personal enjoyment from, from helping people out. Mm. And I guess I'm curious for you, like, you know, there, there was a speech of yours that I was watching and everyone uses the cliche of being a force for good, but I, I'm just curious for you personally, what do you get out of creating an organization like 10 by 10? That's a good question. And just sort of reflecting back on, um, you know, like a little bit about my background to time, what I was saying before, like I always grew up in an environment which where I was incredibly fortunate and that I felt like a real responsibility to live a life that was dedicated to a cause greater than myself. And that I had always been involved in community and um, which growing up in, in an environment where it was very central to like, you know, the way in which my, my family lived their lives. And so for me, it became sort of a natural 
natural thing that I that I became involved in. And 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 as I've been able to you know build ten by ten and to see its impact in the world and to be part of a like creating a movement that's making a real meaningful difference to people, not just you know the organisations we help, but also the people that serve in our committees and 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 the, and the founders that we back. Um, that like it's just just living in alignment with like my purpose, and I think that is like so important in life to have to have that true sense of living in alignment. And I just, I think that's probably the greatest thing that I, I get from it. Yeah. As a kid, like that is a very common thing amongst the Jewish community is like the emphasis on the whole rather than the individual is like a common principle that is regularly pressed upon you guys. Was there particular moments growing up as a kid where like you really felt the gravity of it when you would go to community events was it little things like, you know, talking about that rebuild of the synagogue and, you know, maybe the impact of of the building on the community? Was it something like that in particular that really emphasised it for you? Yeah, it's a really good question because I get this question a lot. Like, number one, one of the number one people want to understand, like, what's the why? Like, why did you start this thing? Like, why did you start ten by ten? What is it like? You know, and particularly older people, they're like, how do I get my kids to care about this stuff? You know? Yeah. And for me, it was just like. You know, I just I think growing up in an, in just an incredibly fortunate environment and growing up in a community that valued service and that we have a word in Hebrew, like the word for charity, it's sadaka, which means righteousness. It just actually means just doing what's right. Right. So it's not, you know, it's just come, you just come to do it because it feels what's what's right. And obviously the organizations that I'm now helping, like it's global, like I'm not even, you know, we do a little bit of work in the Jewish community, but mainly it's like I'm, I'm we're helping the world. So it's just sort of, I guess, but the, yes, it's like universal values. I think that I just that exist within Judaism, but certainly exist within other faiths as well. That are, mm. I think like central to seeing oneself as part of a broader community and seeing oneself as part of and having a, a responsibility to 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 others. Yeah, because I remember there was a uh, just watching a talk by Tony Robbins. Not that I'm I'm a mad Tony Robbins fan today, but I remember when I found the likes of Tim Ferriss and all those sort of self-help gurus, one of the things I noticed about someone like Tony Robbins is how like he was quite, he wasn't a devout Christian, but he, he was clearly a religious guy and really emphasized the component of giving. And his emphasis on it is like going back to your question of like, how do I get my kids to be excited about giving and all that sort of stuff is he used to say that like you feel good. It feels right to do that thing. And that, you should have something in your life, as cliche as it may feel at the time, a cause, an organization, something that you feel like you can add value to without the need for reciprocation of some sort, like money or, you know, like I, I'm missing a post recently about how, like in this era today, a lot of people would be very happy if they found an organization to work with. And it can be anything. It could be like a, ho- a hobbyist group of some sort. Because nowadays with the internet, everything's like, you've got to turn this into a side hustle. You have to turn this into a business. You have to turn this into something rather than just being content with the fact that you're just giving and you're just doing something yeah. and there's nothing that's going to come back to you from it other than just a good feeling, which I find very interesting. Yeah, you're so right. I mean, like 10 by 10 is my side hustle, right? So this, this yeah. is my side hustle, right? But it's a not-for-profit. It gives back. We, we're focused on giving back to the community. We're totally focused on it. And so many times everyone's been like, 
mate, like, can you make this into a social enterprise? Like, what if you earn, like, what if you change the fee revenue? What if, but ultimately, it, when, the, when the essence of the organization lies in service of others and service of purpose, it's like very, I'm, I'm just like, we're very focused in what we do. We serve, we exist to like identify most effective grassroots social purpose organizations that exist in community and connect them with a whole new generation of donors that want to support them in their work. And like, that is what we do. So it's like, I don't need, and, and I'm very fortunate to have had good backers that like believe in the mission and what we're doing and support us, you know, philanthropically. Um, and it's a continual challenge, like being the founder of an organization to ensure that it's like well-funded, but like, you know, that, that is how we're a not-for-profit. This is what we do. We're not trying to be a social enterprise. Now I'm not saying that, that, that like, obviously I'm hugely, I'm a big believer in social enterprise and a lot of the organizations we, we back go on to be incredible social enterprises. But I think it, at, you know, I think it, at our essence, at our core, we, we exist to serve community and we're very focused in doing that. And, and, and I, yeah, so I, I think that's also helped us you know, become what we, you know, what we have been and, and what we are today and has, and hopefully we're respected for, for, for that. So you founded 10 by 10 in 2013. We'll coin this as a millennial based movement. Uh, which the magazines or the the media love to do in a lot of these interviews, but essentially it is it is clearly based on the insight we'll talk about later that it is focused on the next generation of giving in particular. So the model, from memory, I think it's three and a half million dollars that you've uh, the the organization has helped donate to grassroots charities. You've engaged ten thousand plus donors. There's roughly 900 core volunteers. I guess the primary model is focused around Dragon's Den and that charities come in to pitch at an event, guests allocate dollars to their charity of choice on the night. And that's based on the ticket price that they, they pay. So, you know, the way that the model typically works, and I, I sort of really want to emphasize this, is it is a model more than a charity is in that you're helping local groups accelerate giving for their own charities or, or enterprises that they may be focused on. So you help them create an event, you help them build a team, select the partner charities, and then action the actual event, which I found very interesting. So it's almost giving scale to the process more than anything. Obviously, the catalyst for this for you was that you realize that it seems like just looking at other events, the gala dinners were not becoming an effective way to re- to get people to return to these events. You know, you would get a bit of burnout. I guess for you, thinking about 2013 in context, when was the moment when you realized that the best way to change what was happening for your and our generation was by creating a system more than anything? Yeah, well, I think there were two motivating things. Number one, like, as I said, I've always been very, very philanthropic um, and, and, and very community-minded. I've been involved with a bunch of charities in the past, but I'd realised that, like, I actually had, like, my friends were kind of getting tired of me calling them up going, hey, man, we come to this charity thing? And, like, I, you, you can use that you can use that bullet maybe with, like, your good friends maybe once or twice. Then in the end, they're like, dude, like, I'm, I'm like, done. Can we, like, go to the bar or, like, watch the football or something? Like, oh, I've already supported a charity thing. So how could I leverage, like, <laughs> my networks and the social contract that exists between friends to for not always to be relying on me in terms of supporting the cause areas that I thought were meaningful. And then to your other point, 
that I felt like the old school model of philanthropic giving was bust. Like I just think like the old, the big charity gala dinners where you pay like 500 bucks for a ticket and get all dressed up and then everyone goes along. And then like, the, like what does it cost to put that event on relative to like, you know, what's actually distributed to the organizations and, and people feel totally disengaged and not even sure why they're even there. And there's a whole awareness piece of what we do at 10 by 10. It's about the social issues that arise in community that exist within community that we're informing our we're informing our audience about what those issues are that exist within their in their community and we're empowering them to do something about it. Because mm. they have to choose when they come to an event where they want to distribute their money. And we're empowering them in that, in that decision. And in that decision, you know, there, there's not only there's there's much there's significantly more engagement. And so I'd say that those were two of the main things that sort of drove the creation of the model, um, you know, in, at the outset. Yeah, and I can sort of see that, like just thinking about to my own experience of going to gala dinners, like there's clearly when you look at a table of 10 people on average, there's clearly a bunch of tag-alongs, right? Like, yeah, we'll go to a, we'll go to a um, charity event. This is so fun. Now I can tick this off my list of things to do and I'm just really here to get smashed, yeah. which I always find really interesting. Yeah, our, our events are like very, you know, it's like there's three pitches, everyone pitches for, or the organization pitches for five minutes. There's five minutes of questions from like a dragon, like Nagodon Dragon's Den, who's a person from the business and business and philanthropic community. And there's five minutes of questions from the audience. And then when everyone hears, after everyone hears the pitches, they they decide whether they want to allocate their, their you know, their hundred dollars that they've pledged in advance. They get two fifty dollar charity vouchers when they arrive. They and we empower them to make the decision about where they give their money. And then we do throughout really other important things. We do a skills matching service. So often there's people in the audience that have amazing skills that can be matched with the not-for-profits that are very grassroots and, sorry, social purpose organizations, I should say, that to be running this great matching platform. And at the end of every 10 by 10 event, we ask 10 people from the audience to put their hands up to be part of the organizing committee of the next event, which means we're never growing, we're never, we're never pulling on the same pool of people and the model's always growing and scaling. So when did you realize, if you think in relation to the gala events, when did you realize that this model would be sustainable? How early on? And was there something anecdotally that came up because of that? Well, well, it's funny because this idea of doing the call out for the 10 new volunteers at the end, the first ever event, 10 by 10 event we did, everyone's like, Laurie, it's not going to work. Like you're going to look like a total idiot. Like no one, like you, no one's going to put their hand up. It's going to be highly embarrassing for you. We highly, We seriously recommend you don't do this. And I was like, I'm doing it. So I did it, and then 16 people put their hands up. Their hands are going up everywhere. I was like, "This is great." <laughs> so then I realized that we had, you know, that this is something that people feel empowered by. They want to be part of. And then I had never intended 10 by 10 to grow beyond Sydney. I just thought that we were going to do two events a year. That would be my like way of giving my social contribution, pat myself on the back, go back to my finance job, feel good about myself. But that's not what happened. The model took off, and obviously now we're in like 14 different cities around the world. Um, and and yet it's proven to be a model that's like effective and scalable and I think speaks to our generation. Yeah, it, it almost like when I think about it now in hindsight, there's a gamification component of it. Like it reminds me a lot of like, you know, like you'd go to Grilled in the first like few years that they open and they give you a bottle cap to allocate to a local group. It reminds me a lot of that. And it, it's like, it, it just, I can see how it changes someone's perspective. They go from, of going to this charity event to like, oh, this is fun. This is sort of engaging. I, I like this. Like I could get behind this. You know, I can see how it would tip people over the edge into to actually doing something. Yeah, yeah. And, and like we tapped into that whole sort of, you know, we held events in like 
cool startup spaces and tapped, tapped into the whole sort of, you know, sort of new economy and tech entrepreneur sort of um, organizations that, you know, like a lot of our first events in Sydney were held in Google, Atlassian, LinkedIn, they all, Facebook, we've, we've held our events at all these companies' offices. So we tried to sort of align it more with, um, you know, younger tech brands and companies that, that we that thought would be good supporters for us at the outset, which they certainly were. What if I told you the way to take your brand to the next level in 2021 is with TikTok ads? A lot of our clients come to us with a problem. They need to take their brand to the next level. They're typically doing 5 to 10K a month and they need to jump to that 25, 50K per month level. And Instagram and Facebook just isn't what it was. So what's the commonality amongst all this? It is primarily opportunity in a saturated market. And we think that TikTok ads today is the answer. Now, Neural follows a two-phase process to guide you as a challenger brand on the way to growth. Phase one is all about knowing your brand and niche back to front with a focus on breaking even or getting above a break even. Phase two is scaling that creative to blow up your sales in the process once we've secured you as the leader in that niche on TikTok. You do this with the right partner, a committed partner like Neural, and you'll build that confidence in an area that has typically been saturated in the past. It's not a silver bullet, and we'd love to chat to you, so book in a consultation with our specialist team. Just go to neural.com slash TikTok. That's N-E-U-R-A-L-L-E.com slash TikTok, and we'll chat to you from there. So when you think about 10 by 10 today, it's October 2021. What do you think is your job to do in this world over the next five to 10 years? Well, this keeps me up at night. Um, <laughs> no, no, it's, no, seriously, though, it's, it's something that I deeply ruminate on. I mean, I think the one thing we haven't talked about, and this is like, like the model sounds cool, but, what, but what it, the amazing thing about what it's really done, and this is what I've come to realize now looking back on over seven years, is that we have at a very early stage identified some of the most effective social purpose organizations and most amazing social entrepreneurs that exist in this country and help them plug into the places in the philanthropic ecosystem where they can leverage their impact. And that I have seen the incredible journey that some of these social purpose organizations and founders have been on. And I'm being so proud that we we identified them very on early on in their evolution. And what I would like to see in this country is a development of like a model around venture philanthropy, the same way we think about venture capital. We, we can back incredible social purpose organizations, amazing social entrepreneurs in this country to solve some of the most pressing problems that exist within community. Because I really believe that like problems that exist within community, like problems in community are best served to be solved by people that live within it. And we can, and we can help empower those early stage social purpose organizations on to do incredible things. And like that is the role that I see 10 by 10 continuing to play, identifying who those organizations are, empowering our committees to go out and find them. And then connecting them with you know, donors, skills, networks to help them leverage their impact. Let's talk about the, the strategy of the model, which I just find so interesting. And we've, like when we met, we were speaking and chatting about um, effective altruism, which we'll get into a little bit later. But I guess I'm curious for you, like when you look at the charities that you guys are able to create this venture model for and, and look at accelerating funding, the process of awareness, everything that comes within this space for the next generation. You know, you obviously get a lot of these pitches having been to a lot of these events. What do you think is like the ultimate marker for success in the charity? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, so 
we'll get into effective altruism in a minute, but I think like the first way to think is that we are a marketplace, right? So we mm. have these committees that go out, identify the organizations. The organizations can't, they, we give them a criteria, which we think are things that they should think about when they're selecting the organizations. Some of those things that include in the criteria are how effective is this organization in terms of like, what's its, how is it measuring its impact? What would the donation of $10,000 do for this organization in terms of making a meaningful contribution um, to the work that it does, right? So if it's a $5 million rev of revenue, it's, it's not going to be material, right? Whereas a small organization, do, what, what would, where would the funding go towards? How does that leverage the pathways that this organization is naturally on? So we give these criteria to our committees to consider when they're evaluating the organizations. Some of that's been slightly influenced by effective altruism and thinking about like really impacting, impactful giving. But we're not here to play God, right? Okay. So we go out, we say to the, the, the we say to the communities, you go out, find the three charities. They then bring the charities on the night, they bring their friends, so the reflection reflection of the social issues that they care about. And then the then the community decide where they want to allocate their capital, right? So we create that marketplace. And then ultimately we're allowing the community to decide where they where they think the organizations are, that they that whether they want to give their money. Now, I'm very conscious of like that we are effectively here at the outset to provide the marketplace to do that. I haven't gone to the point yet in our evolution. We may decide to think about going there, but we say these guys are the best. They're the most effective for these reasons, right? Now, that's what an effective altruism would do. But we're not here at the outset to play God or to say to you or to anyone else, these are the, this is the best charity you can su support. We're just here to say we're, we're identifying groups that we think are really effective. They're early stage social purpose organizations. Here is the issue that they're solving for. We're giving you, we're connecting you with them. You make the decision. So, in a way, you see yourself as almost being agnostic around anything that may exist for the evaluation of it. You just want the community to worry about that. Well, not completely agnostic. We we we've designed a framework which we give to our committees, as I said, um, and so that informs the decisions because we have a role in playing and in informing the committees about the things they need to be thinking about. But yeah, I'm not here to tell you or anyone else who the most effective charity social purpose organization is in Australia. I think I've got a really unique mechanism to identify who they are and bring them into a marketplace, but the market should decide who the most effective is, not me. Do you see that unique mechanism as IP or are you very, uh, you know, very outward about what that may be having done it, uh, spoken about it in previous podcasts or is it something that you hold dear for the groups that end up forming a committee and proceeding with 10 by 10? How do you mean in terms of what the criteria should be? Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, there's an education piece around this, right? About like, well, what are the things? Like, so one of the things that I hate, I think one of the questions you were going to ask, like one of the questions I hate, I hate this question. And I know one you of your readers take this away as being the number one thing you should not ask a charity when you first meet them is what percentage of the overheads go to the field. It's like, it's like such an irrelevant question, right? Because you could have a charity that's got 50% overheads, which in your mind is like a scarily high number. With the 50% they're giving away, they're incredibly effective. They're saving multiples of thousands of lives, right? Because they're hiring great people. They've got great teams, systems, and processes. The same things we'd want from a business, right? Yet we have another charity who may add 10% of its overhead, overhead cost, but a fantastic charity, only 10%, 90% going to the field. But with the 90% that's given away, they're wholly ineffective, right? So the metrics we should be thinking about when we're evaluating charities is not what it costs to run them or like what, the, like oh, that's an input, right? But like 
what is the impact they're generating from the money that they're just from the money that they're distributing, right? And that is the metric through which we should hold the organizations that we give our money to accountable. And that is what I'm like. So if that, for example, is a is a way of thinking that I'm trying to instill in our generation to change the way we think about charity, because because I think a, a whole whole bunch of the reasons we think about charity, are, are, like that we thought about charity is wrong. Also, I feel like there are way too many charities that are totally ineffective. I'm right. And so that, that probably exists, whereas a commercial business wouldn't, right? Because they're like a not-for-profit and they're charity and people feel like responsibility to keep them going, but they're wholly ineffective at solving them and their problem, right? And I also feel like there's this aversion to allowing to backing charities that fail. Well, what is it? Why are we allowing businesses to fail and not, you know, and don't hold social purpose organizations out to the same account? And so I think that needs to be a change in the way we think about the types of organizations we support to change the culture around them. And I think part of the role that 10 by 10 plays is informing the committees that go out and choose those charities of those, those things that we think should change around the way we think about you know, charitable giving and philanthropy. So do you think the majority of that evaluation is qualitative or quantitative? Do you think it's a case-by-case basis? Yeah, it's a, it's a case-by-case basis. I mean, I was talking to one of our donors yesterday, and it's like the way in which you evaluate a organization in the world of work with disability services in terms of their impact is completely different to how you'd think about one working in the area of you know domestic violence right and so the metrics through which you evaluate the organizations you know are different um, and so I think that, that that takes a nuanced approach to understanding what the impacts are of one against the other and we try and reflect a cross-section of social issues that we try and support in the work that we do. Is there a common indicator that keeps coming back amongst no matter where the social focus is? Like I would assume that life saves would be one of them that continually comes back again and again. Should we get into effective altruism now? Is that, yeah. is that where you want to go? Because yeah. <laughs> I know the first time we met was we we had this conversation, which you know, like I won't I won't pretend to know more about this than than you do. But essentially, at Dan's we spoke about effective altruism. Which in a nutshell, if I could condense it for the audience, is using reason and evidence to maximize charitable results. So it's popularized by Peter Singer. He's an Australian guy. And there's this Scottish guy, Will McCaskill, who's been on Joe Rogan's podcast. So they're like the two prominent in the media, the two most prominent proponents of it. Now, the examples that they consistently give is that uh, a measurement of dollars spent on the end goal, i.e. there's this organization that... I think it's amount of dollars spent on the end goal compared to how many lives that is saved. I think that's their their measurement. Now, they, I know from memory there was a website that literally measured a lot of these things. So, but Peter Singer, he was the one who regularly came back to this point: is that this organization that focuses on mosquito nets in Africa and um, against malaria foundation, the, yeah. the malaria foundation, is more effective than the Clinton Foundation based on where the money goes at that endpoint, which I thought was a good point. Um, and, you know, it, it's not specific to charities, by the way. You know, Will McCaskill, his example is that if you're an individual like yourself who is good at a certain thing and a certain job, you should focus on that job and then maximize the amount of dollars that, or time that you can then use to support charitable organizations like creating an organization like 10 by 10 or donating to charitable organizations. So I totally get where they're coming from. 
I can also see how it sort of almost taints the water a bit around the charitable organization sphere. You know, that may stem from experiences that you've had as well and that, you know, you saw what was happening at these gala dinners. It's not fit for purpose in this next generation that is connected via the internet. And then you get organizations or or groups, philosophical groups like effective altruism that come out of it. So I guess from your perspective, how much does effective altruism impact the markers that you guys look at for 10 by 10? And what do you think of it generally? Something I wrestle with a lot, and I, I would say I'm certainly influenced by effective altruism by the work of Peter Singer, Will, Will McCaskill. Will McCaskill did a great, if you're, if, if you're listening to the podcast, this is the thing, he did a great one also with Sam Harris last year called Doing Good. He's written a great book called Doing Good Better, which I recommend that people read. Um, and I'm certainly influenced by their work. Um, and I'm influenced by the concept that we should, you know, also as an investor, because that's like what I do, that, that we, the money that we just give away, we should be thinking about the most impact it's creating in the world. They argue philosophically that the greatest impact you can make is saving lives and that saving lives, um, the, the highest dollar return on dollar investment you can get in terms of saving lives is given to mainly areas of in the developing world, particularly Africa, where 40% of people live under the poverty line. And then malaria being one of the number one causes of death. So if you provide bed nets, mosquito nets, children in Africa, you're going to save far more lives than you would do supporting um, a local children's. Like I don't, know, I don't want to use an example, but they would, they would argue that the, the dollar given to the Against Malaria Foundation is far more effective than a dollar given to one of the 10 by 10 charities that we would, you know, support uh, here in our local community, right? Mm. Now, there's elements of what they talk about, which I think are incredibly re- relevant in terms of like just a real having a framework for the evaluation of organizations to think about the, the impact that those that, and the value of those organizations make. And then to your point in terms of one's time, certainly like how I've thought about my own life, like, well, how can I make the greatest impact? Arguably, like for Lawrence Marshbaum, it's not a better trade to like go and work in a, in, you know, in an, as an aid worker in Sierra Leone, as opposed to like set up start a not-for-profit, raise a bunch of money, you know, work in the financial services industry, establish networks, and be able to leverage those to be a force for good, right? So I've thoughtful about how I've constructed my life in the context that they define, just describe in terms of how you create, you optimize the version of yourself to create the most good, but I'm not like completely sold on their model of giving on effective altruism for two reasons. Number one, like I said earlier, I don't want to be God. Effective altruists kind of want to be God. I've got a good Jewish friend of mine, Josh Ross. He's like the founder of Humanitics. You may have seen them, great business, disrupting the ticketing model to give a bunch of money to charities. And um, I joke with Josh that he's like converted from Judaism to effective altruism because he's like (laughs) real card-carrying effective altruist. Um, So it becomes like a bit of like, you know, it kind of of becomes a bit of a religion, right? Because It it is. That's a good analysis of it. Yeah. And so, but where it breaks down for me, is, is, is like this. When we think about the life of, when we think about giving, when we think about community, we all as individuals want to be part of something bigger, greater. Like we feel a sense of collective purpose in the communities we live in, right? Whether that be the Greek community you grew up in, the Jewish community I grew up in, and then the broader communities that we all are part of now. And that, that, that living rich lives in terms of richness, not in financial terms, but in terms of, you know, just living like spiritual terms, is done through being connected to community and living firmly within it and, and being feeling like you're being part of something that's greater than yourself. And that giving is part of that. 
and supporting the organizations that form the foundations and tapestry of the communities that you live lead to a sense of like real well-being in oneself and a sense of deep connection to the cause areas that, that we think are part of the community. And that exists here in Australia as well. We're all fortunate to live in a wonderful country. We see those that are incredibly vulnerable in the communities in which we live. You know, we've gone through COVID, which has created huge amounts of social displacement. We feel a responsibility, those that are fortunate enough to be in the positions that you and I are in, to support those that are less vulnerable than ourselves. And that makes us feel good, right? Mm. So are you going to feel as connected um, to giving a dollar to an Against Malaria Foundation as you would, you know, to supporting an organization in, in your local community that, that is potentially helping people in a cause area that you deeply care about or you've been deeply personally affected by? No. Probably not. And, and so I'm not here to tell you that the dollar you're spending with a local charity is a dollar wasted because you could be giving it to save a life in Africa. I'm telling, here to tell you that you should consider the vast range of metrics that make an organization effective in the context of the way in which you give your money. But also, I'm not here to tell you that that is the way you should be giving because it's the most effective and it's the most rational. Yeah. I guess the argument that they would have that, that Peter Singer types is that local organizations could feed into uh, a cognitive bias around tribalism. Like I've heard that point raised a few times, but to be honest, I also don't care. You know, like you raise a good point. I remember after our conversation, I was like, like, why do I care about how many dollars are effectively donated for this organization that might exist in West Africa? Like for me personally, I've said this repeatedly to people in my close family. There are two clear organizations for me that matter. Diabetes research and research around dementia. There's two primary reasons. One, my brother's a type 1 diabetic. And I don't think that people in this day and age with the research potential we have should continue to have to deal with this issue. And two, dementia is a prominent one for me because my grandmother, who I was exceptionally close with, suffered from dementia for like five years until she died. And so, yeah, when I thought about it after our chat, I was like, I mean, it's, it's a no-brainer for me. If I became a billionaire, I'd put 100 million here and 100 million there. That's interesting. See, I would like, where I land on this is that I'm like, you know, I'm a portfolio manager, so I think about diversified exposure. I, I give money to the effective altruism, effective altruism Australia for my personal money because I believe that a portion of my money should go to the most effective causes. I also give money to the organizations that I'm deeply personally affected, affected by. But you're like, and this is like, I'm now paying the effective altruist. So pardon <laughs> me for playing this role, but like you're now giving completely focused on your own personal biases to what you just said, right? That like yeah. actually, because you were personally impacted by each of these, these, these um, cause areas, do you feel like they're the places where you want to give? That's your right to give to them. I'm not here to tell you that you're giving to the wrong place. Yeah. But if you've got an X amount of money to give away each year, I would argue, you know, this is my own personal framework, that a portion of it should go to the most effective organizations. A portion of it should go to the organizations that you deeply care about. And maybe some of it should go to other places. But all those organizations should be effective in the way they're distributing your money. So if the dementia organization, and I don't know about them because they're a larger charity I'm not working them, is wholly ineffective at solving dementia, or training people with dementia, then it's probably not worth your while giving them money. But yeah. if they are very effective at it, then absolutely it is. 
Yeah, I look at the the two issues as not by the charities, but by the problem itself. And no, I completely agree. I mean, there's also always going to be a part of my mind that's like, yeah, but like you are being quite biased towards your specific problem. So you should consider the downside of, you know, being too ultra focused on that. So why don't you consider some here? But I, yeah. I do think I did lean too much towards the other way prior to our conversation, just because I'd listened to a few episodes of Will McCaskill. All right. Well, am I? Oh, really? So I, might, so I might take you back now. But no, it's interesting. It's a really interesting philosophical question because the danger with your approach, and like I've just wrestled with this a lot, like the danger with your approach is like if everyone just optimize, just gives money to the cause areas they're personally impacted by, then arguably we're not going to create a society which is improving social outcomes in the areas that need it most. And I accept that the areas where people are most disadvantaged in the world are in, are in Africa in countries where there's where it's just rife with poverty and that a dollar given there is incredibly effective in terms of saving multiple lives. Mm-hmm. Um, well, not, not multiple, but like a dollar there, a dollar there can be more impactful um, in terms of saving lives. And so therefore, you know, I accept the argument, but I also, I also see totally where you're coming from. I just would sort of land somewhere in between the two. Yeah, you've got to have a balanced approach. I can yeah. totally understand that. Can I ask in terms of balance, uh, your own balance of everyday life, how are you working as a portfolio manager while also doing this, what does your week look like? <laughs> well, it's really interesting because um, this you raise this topic of balance because every year, because I had, I just had this whole conversation about balance on Friday night, every year I have um, a lunch with my friends around the time of Jewish New Year, which is all about renewal, setting intentions. And we set a one-word intention for the way we want to live right, for the year to come. And um, everyone shares what their word is. We live intentionally by it. And then I make them into these bracelets, which I give to my friends. Oh, wow. And we, I give them to them and we, and we all think about, you know, what, those, what our word is and we hold each other accountable to the words we have. And one of my friends, she, she said that her year was balanced. This was her word, this year was balanced. And we, all, and we discussed it. And I've, I've thought a lot about this. I mean, and I think that it's about that life is not necessarily, I don't believe in living in a, balance, a balanced life, like in, that, in the traditional sense. I actually believe in living in a state of imbalance mm. because I don't think that life, in, I, I think about my own framework. I've, I, there's four pillars I talk about that I care about in my life, work, purpose, personal relationships, and then health. And health is like physical and mental health and well-being. And that in my life, there's never a period of time where all four are in perfect equilibrium, where I'm always like, I've got this nailed, I'm super fit, my relationship's going great, work's smashing it, and like my purpose is bang on, right? Like I've never, I, I, like maybe like it's a fleeting moment, but there's always one of those things that's, that's, that's not right, right? And so it's learning to live in a state of imbalance with the various parts of your life that are important to you. Yeah. And I think like that's the art I'm trying to master. It's so funny you mentioned that because um, one of the things that... Uh... That Dan mentioned to me is he's like, you know, Lawrence, man, like he, he's one of those guys, you wouldn't know it from the outside, but when you get to know him, uh, he's like always 15 minutes away from like chaos, which I found very, very, very funny. Very funny indeed. Probably right. He's probably right. Um, <laughs> all right. Let's jump into some rapid fire questions to finish things off. Uh, books that you'd recommend to the audience on this topic in particular? Yeah, I think great books on giving. I love reading books that challenge my thinking on things. Winners Take All by Anna Jirahendas, which challenges the framework of philanthropy and really the frameworks that constructed this idea of philanthropy. And he really challenges it from a uh, top-down perspective. I think it's a deeply interesting book. I would recommend Will McCaskill's Doing Good Better. And then people are calling you, Jordan, the Australian Tim Ferriss. And this book is actually the most uh, recommended book, I think, on Tim Ferriss's podcast. And that's 
Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Yeah. Because I feel like amazing book. You know, and unless this is like if you unless you have a deep sense of purpose that instills doing this all this type of work, evaluating how you give it or the most effective ways of doing it or how you go about it, it's all irrelevant. Yeah. Man's Search for Meaning is easily one of the top five books I've ever read. And I read a lot. Like I'd say that it's it's just utterly fascinating. It's the I think one of the best ways to read about the Holocaust in particular as well, because it it strips away all religion, political biases, it just pulls us all back to hum, humanity, essentially. And that's why I particularly like this book. All right, last question for you. If you had a quote to live by or something that you think about often. I'd actually go with a quote from that book. Okay. From Manchester for Meaning. And it goes, happiness cannot be pursued. It ensues and only does so as the unintended consequence of living a life that is dedicated to a cause greater than oneself. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's a very, pro- I feel like I've underlined that quote in the book. He's an amazing man. He's an amazing man for quotes as well. I feel yeah. like half the half of Tim Ferriss's posts are like quotes from Victor Frankl. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's a book that's influenced a lot of people. And I think, you know, back to the root of what we're talking about, it, if it helps people connect to their deep sense of purpose in life, then I think that that is, you know, it's, yeah, it's it certainly helped many people. I've recommended it to do to, to that. I think as well, people go read it. Um, it's when you look at when it was published. So it was published in 1946. So we're talking not even a year after the Holocaust. Mm. Like to me, that is fascinating. And from memory, he went back to Germany, right? Yeah, that's or right. He, he went back to Austria. Yeah, that's right. He went back to Europe. I mean, like, you should also, it's, this is not a book to read over the summer by the pool. I mean, <laughs> no, this is no, like, this no, is hard no. going. This is hard <laughs> stuff. Yeah. No, yeah. it's, it's it's incredibly worthwhile. Yeah. Well, sorry, I, I, I take that back. It was, it was released in German in 1946. The actual international English translation was 59. Um, but to release that in 1946 in Germany, that's, I mean, that man had balls. 100%. Can I get a, can I get a quick plug-in for our committees like around of Australia? Course. Of course. I would love to have whoever your listenership is and, and, and if you are, Feel inspired to get involved and to potentially give back to to any. We've got ten by ten committees operating in every all of the major cities in Australia. So um, find us at ten by ten philanthropy.com. Ten the number ten x number ten philanthropy.com. Ten by ten gives is our handle. Um, get in touch with us, and we'd love to have you on our committees. Get out in the community. Find these incredible social purpose organisations that like exist. It's never it never ceases to amaze me how many incredible organisations there are in this country amazing how many amazing social entrepreneurs there are that need our support um so you know i'd welcome your listeners to to be part of the movement and to come on board we'll link all of that but i guess one things uh that they may be interested in is uh there's obviously the key section on the website around events which talks to what is coming coming up in future where can people learn more about or where do you recommend they start on this website for learning about what's going on yeah well We've been we're a bit of a COVID impacted business, Jordan, as you can imagine, running events through a, through a, through a pandemic. So it's been uh, it's been a challenge. We've been able to keep going and run some digital events and do some cool initiatives on the fundraising side. Um, but we look we work we're looking forward to welcoming everyone back and just being in a room again with people and the 
the energy that that creates, particularly when you're, you know, meeting up, meeting with people to create a collective outcome that's good for community. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we'll be rebooting our events probably um, early next year. So on the website, if you're interested in being on part of one of the committees that is going to run those events, then there's a section on the website where, which, where you can get in contact. And so just do that and we'll, we'll reach out with you and we'll connect you to the, the, the leaders of the cities in each of the, the, the cities that we run. And they're also incredible people and that really build a sense of community and and uh, it's great. It's a great thing. I know every, all the all the committee members have just loved being part of. You know, looking at the website, I think that's a good way to go about it. Contact us. Check out, of course, what's coming up with events. I think from memory, you guys um, offer a subscription via email, but we'll link all of that um, so that people can keep up to date with what's going on. But uh, Laurie, thanks for coming on onto the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for um, creating the space for having this conversation. Um, I know that this may be a little bit different to the other um, topic areas you've focused on, but I've, I've really enjoyed it. It's been good to jam on this stuff with you. Um, and then we'll see where we end up on the uh, effective altruist versus other philanthropist <laughs> scale. Yeah, I'm going to be intrigued to see people listening to this, what they think. Because um, yeah. no doubt, I always get like five or six regulars who listen to the show um, that are always messaging me on Instagram. I'm sure they'll come back with questions on this. Like I get it every single week. So it's going to be interesting to see whether they, what position they come back on after this. But um, Laurie, thanks for coming on the show. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for checking out this episode. If you liked it, do subscribe. And of course, like it on YouTube if you're watching as well. We'd really appreciate that. For audio, if you've not already listening on your podcast app, you can search for it on any good app, including Spotify, Pocket Cast, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, etc. For video, if you're not watching, you can search Uncommon Podcast on YouTube. It's the first one that appears every single time. For behind the scenes, do follow us on Instagram and TikTok. It's at uncommon underscore show. But until next time, thanks for tuning in.